There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, and welcome back to Forma here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and coming up here in Forma, we have part two of Andrew Kern and Tim McIntosh's conversation about a brief biography of reason. Uh, that conversation will actually be three parts, and we're bringing you part two this week, and then two weeks from now, we're planning to bring you part three. But before we bring you part two this week, I need to say a quick word from a couple of partners who are making this podcast and the network possible this month. You've heard us talk about it already, but our friends over at the Duke University's Arete Initiative will be hosting a high school summer seminar on ethics, philosophy, and religion on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina, and that's July 9th through the 14th. This seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college. Using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the ideas of natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. The seminar will be co-taught by several Duke University instructors and professors. It is open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. There is absolutely no fee associated with applying or attending, and those admitted will be housed in Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. Students who are interested in applying should email johnrose at john.rose at duke.edu for further details. Again, that's john, J-O-H-N dot rose, R-O-S-E at duke.edu. Applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26th, 2018. This episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Roman Roads Media. Roman Roads Media is a publisher of classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers, homeschool co-ops, and anyone who has a thirst to learn. And they have an announcement. Save the date because their annual spring sale is just around the corner. From April 23rd to the 30th, you can save up to 50% off on logic, rhetoric, poetry, Latin, economics, Old Western culture, and more. So if you and your kids are ready to jump into Homer with Wes Callahan, Shakespeare with Peter Lighthart, Tolkien with Jonathan McIntosh, or poetry with Matt Whitling, this is the time to save. And again, that's April 23rd through the 30th to save 50% off any of those courses. But there's actually more. In addition to the published sale, they have an exclusive offer for listeners of our network, of the Cersei Podcast Network. Over the last year, Roman Rhodes has been releasing a Great Books Breeder series to accompany their old Western culture curriculum. Ten of the 16 readers are now published and available for purchase over on their website. And during the spring sale, they're offering podcast listeners a free reader with any curriculum purchase. So what you have to do is before checking out, just add at least one reader to your cart and use the coupon code Circe Reader, so C-I-R-C-E-R-E-A-D-E-R, to apply the discount. And again, it's the annual Roman Road Spring Sale, April 23rd through the 30th, and you just have to add one of those 16, well, one of those 10 readers with the other six that are coming soon, and just add the coupon code Circe Reader to get that discount, to get that free book. And you can do all of that over at romanroadsmedia.com. Again, that's romanroadsmedia.com. All right, well, let's get you over to Andrew and Tim's conversation, a part two of their conversation about a brief biography of reason. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Forma. Andrew Kern again with Tim McIntosh. Tim, I had fun with you in the last episode talking about the the seven uh, ages, seven chapters of the biography of reason, which we get to talk about again. Was Did you have a good time? I loved it. Good. And I was a little skeptical because you and I off the air were sort of like, I wanted to build an outline first and you said, no, let's just, let's just do it. Let's well, just dive into that's it. That's because I know that you already had an outline and I don't, I don't mean that you had already determined what you wanted yeah. to say. What I mean is you already know the history of reason very well. So I wasn't worried about it. I didn't know if, if my biography of reason and your biography of reason, if they were going to part ways. Well, Tim, I'm friendly. Okay. Obviously there are things that you got totally wrong on that. (laughs) (laughs) 
and this but is kind of like the corrections episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right, retractions. <laughs> right, but, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to embarrass you in public. No. Thank you. I no. This is this is I think a general. This is the way people would view Western history. Is you know how it went. The, I would say two things. One is something has to be done to recognize that real thought took place in the Eastern world after Byzantium. Absolutely. And actually, I, I, okay, this is what I want to say is that. And when did Byzantium fall? 1453. Was it 1453? Let's say the 15th century. Middle 15th. Yes. And, and so, okay. One of the inflection moments in world history is the fall of the Byzantine empire, the fall of Constantinople. That is a moment. Right. Of colossal significance, greater in its significance than the Great War, probably, okay, for positive and negative reasons. And I do think, therefore, what I'm getting at is I, I do think that at some point it would be good if we could discuss the role of Byzantium in reason in world history, okay? The other thing is, and this probably is related because you know the locational, you know, pl- place space-wise, these are related— we also didn't talk at all, uh, I don't think we did, about the Hebrews. Right. And and that's an interesting thing to me, too. Are we? Are you and I then contending that the Hebrews were irrational people? <laughs> <laughs> are, are we, I mean, golly, nobody thinks better than a, than a really well-educated, well-trained Jewish mind, right? Absolutely. It's, it's unbelievable. My friend Paul, um, a secular Jew who attends synagogue often, hmm. talks about how... Um, it's a culture of argument. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. he married an evangelical woman. Oh, wow. Do they argue a lot then? I think they get along really well. <laughs> but she, she you know, she's kind of coming from the evangelical model where the pastor's up in front and he says the sermon, show's over, time to go home. And oh, she that said, was not nice. You apologize to our evangelical friends, Tim. And she said that what she's <laughs> not going to do it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize for both of us in this sense. As we've said over and over, whatever we say on this show is a hypergeneralization. Absolutely. Because that's all it can be. But I, I don't a mean caricature. it. I, I mean, like, literally, in every evangelical service that I've been in, I was raised evangelical, when the pastor, when the sermon concludes, there's typically Church a is song. Over. And there's a benediction. Maybe there's a benediction, and then church is over. That's what that's but, what I meant, right? But but the but the phrase that bothered me was not church is over, not shows me, over. Shows over. Oh, you were objecting to show. Yes. I will grant you that there are churches of uh, right. any stripe where they make it a show. I didn't mean to make it sound like that because that's not yeah that's not part of the my my church heritage is not very showy. Okay. Okay. Um. I hope I hope our audience then understands that we mean this respectfully. Yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. The evangelical who is married to the secular Jew said when she first started going to synagogue, she was just so enamored because it was so argumentative. Huh. The rabbi would During sit synagogue. down. Oh yeah. The rabbi would sit down and he would explicate a passage and then he's got his in our terms, congregation. Yeah. And they just would harangue him for oh, the I next hour, oh, and she eventually. Oh, it's me. no, it sounds it sounds wonderful. But she even said it. It kind of gets wearying. She kind of wishes she could go back a little bit because it's just so, so argumentative. But I mean, talk about a blessed culture in so many ways. A constant back and forth, a constant sharpening. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's subject to abuse, but right. but. If they're it's if they're genuinely appealing. trying to understand, I mean, one of my favorite with an movement. authority and, and taking for granted Good point. the Torah is the authority. Mm. Now, its meaning is subject. That's what the, that's right. what the argument is about. Right. But they're not just haranguing each other without an agreed upon authority. I think that's very important uh, in the biography yes. that we're going to be telling. Yes, is that probably during the time of the Enlightenment, authority gets jettisoned. In favor of reason operating yeah. solo. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I tend to regard that as the moment when the West slides into self-deception. But I have to just say, yeah. my f- one of my five favorite moments in all of movie history is in the movie Yentl. Which, I've never seen which, it. Which, which, which I, I, I've only seen it one time in the theater around 1985. So I don't even know if this really happened. <laughs> <laughs> 
But the way I remember it, there's these there's these young Jewish college age. I don't know if they're considered seminarians or if they're just college students or whatever. But they're sitting there at, as I recall, like picnic tables. About eight of them, I think. Orthodox Jews. I believe so. Okay. I think in Russia, right? That's where that movie said. I, I, I have to watch it again now. But they're but they're sitting at a table like you and I are right now, and they are arguing with each other. And the way I remember it, they are arguing with each other so intensely that they're li- they're talking at the same time constantly, and they're hearing what the other person is saying, processing it, and responding wow. to it without without like you just you just said wow, that kind of interrupted me a little bit, right? But they wouldn't have said wow. They would have said a whole paragraph. Which the other person would have right. heard and then responded to. Now I may be just fantasizing, but I love that idea so much. What you're what you're imagining is kind of it's Andrew's vision of heaven in a yes. way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because because and it's not because I like arguing. Okay. My dad used to say accuse me of really liking argument. He used to tell me, Andrew, you're so persnickety. And I'd say, Dad, the word's pernickety. <laughs> Someone, someone, but oh, I do, I'm sorry, but, I but it's here. not, but it's not, I just, it was a lead up to a joke. <laughs> it was a joke, but, but it's not, it's not just that I like arguing. It's that I, but that I intuitively have always felt that there's more that no matter how well I understand something, there's more. And if somebody will challenge me, he doesn't have to destroy what I understand right now. He can augment, he can augment, he can correct. Right. So I, that's why. That's why I love it. That's why I love discussions. You're so really much. good at that, also. Oh, you're so kind. No, it's true. You're really good at. Um, In what way do you think it's true? Because I don't believe you. When, <laughs> when you and I talk, and we have a like, we were having a conversation about politics last night as we walked, and I offered a counterpoint, and you absorbed it and took it seriously at the same time. Huh. Well, that's really nice of you. And to it's say. a real gift. I don't think that's a gift. Well, I mean, it's. You think it's a skill? No. Okay, in a sense, it's a gift, but but that makes it sound like, you know, you're gifted in that way. Oh, right. I think it's a hunger. Right, that's, that's. I, I think I'm just hungry. And so if somebody offers me food, I prefer to eat it instead yeah. of spit it out. Yeah. It might be a personality disorder, I'll give you that. <laughs> so we didn't, so... In the last podcast, part one, we didn't talk about the Hebrews' vision of reason. Didn't. And so we need to decide, when are we going to introduce the Hebrews? There, there are two places, potentially, that we could introduce the Hebrews. One of them is if we're going to we already, take... We just did introduce the Hebrews. But we haven't said a darn thing about what they think about reason. Okay. We can either introduce the Hebrews when they become to when I they feel like arguing with you. I know. I sense that. Because we did say things about what they think of reason. We talked about how they would argue even in synagogue and that there's a place for argument and that that's refining and all that. That's, a, that's, that's based. Okay. Thank you. That clarifies for me. That is based on a belief in reason that says argumentation is the use, can be the use of reason to help you see better. Yeah. That's absolutely crucial. And it's necessarily a communal endeavor. Oh, thank you. Right. Yes. Which I think that also, I actually will argue, maybe at the end of this podcast, that I think that is one of the aspects of postmodernism that I think should be smiled Yeah, the communal. Yeah. Absolutely. The communal, yeah. The communal, absolutely. Hey, do you want to see if we can do that Jewish thing where like you do a whole paragraph and yeah, we'll talk we, at the same time? What are we going to argue about? How do you want to do it? Do we you need to argue do, about something we have about strong convictions and lots of knowledge about. Okay, and perfect. I think I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> we just did it. <laughs> yeah, we did it for 30 seconds. Yeah. I don't know if I can keep going. <laughs> Could have. <laughs> so we're gonna if we talk about I think we just freaked out our audience. <laughs> Sorry. If we're gonna talk about um I would like to focus a little bit more on the Hebrews when we get to the chapter uh what is chapter number Enlightenment four in Many, our I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um in chapter number two. Late Romans. in chapter two, the Romans, because that's when the Christian church begins to become so influential in the West. Now, you might argue that, no, we need to talk about the Hebrews earlier. I would actually argue that. Yeah. How, I come, would, how come, Andrew? I, <laughs> I would, you know, March 14th. Did we miss March? We did. March 14th is a very special day. 
many people, mathematicians, like March 14th because it's Pi Day. I like that. P-I is in the letter pi mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Greek. Um, I like that, but I think it's an even better day because Exodus 3.14 is the birth of the world, the birth of reason, the birth of the birth of the mind. Exodus 3.18. 14. 3.14. What happens in Exodus 3.14? Moses has just said to the Lord, who shall I say has sent me? And the Lord says to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. I believe, I believe that is the birth of Western civilization, that sentence. Tell them I am has sent you. And also the birth of reason. Yes. Why? Well, the birth of, oh, the birth of, thank you. Let's say the conception of self-conscious reason. Because th- there's an absurdity behind all of this that prior to this people didn't think. Right. And nobody's arguing that. Right, right, right. Okay. But what I'm contending, oh boy. Okay, so. Let me put it in, in, in terms of a story that some... Okay. I'm going to oversimplify Moses' life and speculate a little bit to, to the point where I probably become wrong. But I'm illustrating a point, not trying to prove it. Right. But I think everybody knows who reads Exodus that Moses was laid in the bulrushes as a baby in a, in a, in a little ark and was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. Okay. However, what we tend to forget is Pharaoh's daughter immediately found a nurse for the child. And that nurse was, was it his sister or his mother? So, so he, was, he was raised in two places. He was raised in the Egyptian court and he was raised in a Hebrew home. And apparently, apparently, he was raised until he was an early adolescent in the Hebrew home. Right. And then handed over to Pharaoh's mother. So in that time, he has absorbed the, 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 the Jewish, the Hebrew tradition, the, the story of the world, the creation. You know, we sometimes think he, he just, God revealed to him Genesis 1 when he was an old man or something. I doubt that. Maybe, maybe. But my, my, my guess is, my supposition would be that these are stories, the whole Genesis account are stories that were handed on. Abraham told Isaac, who told Jacob, who told Joseph. I share that speculative story. Okay. I think that's what happened also. Okay. And of course, it doesn't deny the divinity of the story. The Lord preserves it. Okay. And he preserves it as he preserves so many things, which is by love of parent to child. So he, pre- he preserves the story and, and Moses's mother tells him the stories that make up the book of Genesis and a lot more including the creation story, of course. Then he goes to the Egyptian court, and it tells us in, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that he becomes learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Okay? I think it was Stephen says that. Um, okay, so now what we've got is a man who, and, and that wisdom is going to, of course, include military, strategic, political instruction, but it's going to include their mythology. Right. So he now has two explanations of the cosmos. In one of them... When you see the Nile River, what you see is a god, okay? When you see a jackal, you see a god. When you see a hippopotamus, you see a god. Now, the sun, you see a god. You, yes, okay? Now, the great god, the giver of life, the, the, the source of Egyptian culture and everything is the Nile. Mm-hmm. So imagine... It's a wild God. It's an irregular God. Imagine a man being so powerful that he could overcome that God and regulate the Nile. Okay, that, that, that's something we can't really get our heads around. Mm. This is a God that is feeding us and destroying us. A man has now come along and regulated it, conquered it, tamed it. That man is greater than the gods. That's the Pharaoh. Okay. And that's why the Pharaoh is a priesthood religion with secret knowledge and included in that secret knowledge is geometry because it's geometry that enables them to conquer the river. Okay. And, and math. So you're saying just to clarify that the Pharaohs, this secret knowledge allowed them to kind of predict the tides of the Nile and regulate it because they built dams and everything. And because of that intellectual power, 
they became elevated to the pharaohs to the status of kind of like the god above the gods. Yeah. yeah. And and everybody knows the pharaohs were worshipped. And now Moses comes along. And he's brought up in that court and he hears that story. Right? He 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 also is, I imagine, is expected to revere the Pharaoh as a god, but because he's on the inside, you know, he he's he's gonna have actual knowledge of the real person, right? So now it gets complicated because Cleopatra believed herself to be the daughter, you know, she believed herself to be a goddess, to have divine blood. So that's and that she's a Greek. So we're now we're now fifteen hundred years after Moses, and they're still believing that the, the Egyptian royal family still has that pagan view of reality. Now the the fundamental point though is if that river isn't a river but a god, then it's not a river. Okay, what you think it is isn't what it actually is. Okay, when you see a hippopotamus jackal, whatever, anything you see, what you think it is, isn't actually what it is. There's something behind it that's more real than what it appears to be. Yes. Therefore, what you see with your senses is an illusion. Okay? Now, Moses has two stories of the creation now. One is, it's an illusion. The other is, it was spoken into being by one God, mm-hmm. and there's only one. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now imagine with that background, he's out, he's out in the wilderness, and he see, and these two dynamics are in his head. Now I have no idea if he's still wondering, but for for this illustration, before he sees the burning bush, you don't know if he's really wondering. Consider, surely, surely he is. Well, and like, but but his father Jethro is a worshiper of the one true God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A priest. So I would just think. Well, anyway, we are, we were totally getting into speculation. Correct. So let me continue mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so now this is what I imagine. Moses sees a burning bush, but the bush is not being consumed. Flames consume when they burn. Bushes are consumed. Moses has seen that hundreds of times. Has he's, he? he surely? Why? Not surely. He has seen fire consuming wood. Oh, thank of you, thank you. Yes, yes, yeah. And and he's out and, and in that wilderness. My understanding is a, a bush like that can light up any time, right? The heat from the sun. It's it's mm-hmm. desert, 120 degrees. Foof! The bush burns up. It's gone. Yeah. Okay, but it can take seconds. Well, this one, he sees it start. No big deal. Oh, it's still burning. And still burning. And still burning. So he approached, I must now turn aside and see this great sight. That's reason acting right there. I must now, a discord has been introduced into his mind. A question. What the heck? Uh I doubt he said that. What on earth is happening here? And while he's walking to the bush, this is what I imagine might have happened. Okay. That bush isn't being consumed by that flame. Does that mean that I'm looking at a world that's an illusion? Or does that mean that there's something greater than this world? And it's the most, it's the most colossal ontological moment in human history. He's walking to, and by that I just mean having to do with being itself. Mm-hmm. What is? What mm-hmm. is reality? That's what the word ontology means. Yeah, St- the study of being, being, right? Yeah, what is what is what is? Yeah. yeah, could say what is real, but no, maybe we're getting redundant. So he's walking toward the bush, and my guess is, if I'm seeing a bush that's not being consumed, I'm thinking I'm in an illusion. Okay, and so he's walking toward this bush, and he and he hears the voice say, "Moses, take off your shoes." From off your feet. I always want to say, Moses, take off your feet. Moses, take off your shoes from off your feet. For the you're standing on holy, holy ground. Holy ground. Now, at this point, it could be, it could be either. Then the Lord says to him, "I'm, I am the Lord your God, the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." Okay, so he's now revealed himself as the God of the Hebrews. Okay, and he says, "Set my people free." And yet, Moses, at that critical moment, he still says. Who shall, Who shall I, say I say has sent me? 
And I think, I think part, a tiny portion maybe, or maybe the main thing, part of what he's asking there is, is this world real or not? Is this world spoken into being by a God who is not the world? Or is this world, in fact, gods mm. wearing costumes? Mm-hmm. Right? And the Lord says, tell them, I am has sent you. Now, I grant you, that word is virtually untranslatable. You know, translations try desperately. It, it, it's, you know, is it I am who I choose to be? I am that I am. Probably all that. But but what it's not saying is, I'm just an appearance or, or this is just an appearance, right? And And that settles it for Moses. And from that moment forward, one thing you're going to do if the world is real is when you look at a tree... This is why I love so much in Kings when it summarizes Solomon's life. If my memory serves correctly, the opening line is, he sang of trees. Huh. Isn't that fabulous? There's nothing too small for the Judeo-Christian's attention because, because all of it was made. There's no, people say, why should I study science? And my answer is, because it's good. Mm. Right? Why should I, why should I learn? Because it's good. Because God declared it good. Why should I learn about truth? Because it's good. Mm-hmm. Now, are there things you can do? There's a practical, yes, because you're a steward of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but if you're going to be a steward of something, if you're going to be a steward of a dog, if you're going to be a steward of a lawn, if you're going to be a steward of a tree, if you're going to be a steward of a farm, the first thing you have to believe to treat it rightly is that it's good. Right. If you don't begin with that, you will learn about it for all the wrong reasons. So Moses now, and I say good because that's what Genesis 1 says. That's what the the, the, the Hebrew account of the creation says. So Moses determines at that moment, we live in a good creation. Being a good creation, it's worth getting to know as it is. It's worth measuring, not just so I can overpower it and control it. It's worth measuring because it's good. Mm-hmm. It's worth measuring because I'm responsible for its mm-hmm. well-being. It's worth, it's worth watching how it responds to different circumstances. It's worth domesticating. Mm-hmm. It's worth training. Because it's good mm-hmm. and spoken into being by a God who is good. There's another part of this, which is, and it can be understood. And it can be understood. Which is interesting, Andrew, because I was looking at Searcy.org. It's Searcy.org, right? That's the name of your Searcy website. Searcyinstitute.org. Searcyinstitute.org. You had four commonalities for classical Christian education. Kind of like there's a lot of variation yeah. among classical Christian education. We're here, we're here the four things that Christian classical education kind of shares. One of them is a very high view of humanity. Mm-hmm. We're made in the image of God. And number two is the world can be understood. Mm-hmm. And so that come that is a direct outflow of what you're talking about Absolutely. with Moses. It can be understood. Oh my. We might never get to what we're We doing. have to get to our biography. It's I mean that you are this is the biography. I get this. But maybe this I mean we're getting to the point like maybe this is a podcast about this is how the Hebrews and let's say the Greeks who also had a high view of the under yes. that yes. the world could be understood. This is how they kind of got in league. That's where I'm going. Yeah. Okay. If you go, okay, two two points. One is it's understood because contrary to John Dewey, contrary to postmodern thought, you and I, we belong here. We're 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 part of it. Okay. We share our nature with it. What happens in our mind and what happens in the world correspond to each other. It's knowable to us. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, of course, parameters of that knowledge. But the fact that our knowledge is limited doesn't mean we can't know it. Right. And I can't, this is, this. I always worry that all of a sudden I'm getting into this deep philosophical, uninteresting point on this. But look, what they've been teaching children in public schools and state-run schools for over close to a century now, in varying degrees, and now more than ever, and especially at the university level, what they're teaching children, whether they ever tell them it or not, what they're teaching them is, you don't belong in this world. You can't know it. The only thing you can know is your own mind, if that, okay? And therefore, you have your truth, and I have mine. And you cannot build a soul, you cannot build a society, and you certainly can't build a community on those assumptions. Because those assumptions necessarily involve some sense of commonality, that we can come alongside each other 
Community requires something in common. Right. And to have that thing in common, it requires that we at least be able to see, think, experience in a way that is common to both of us. Yes. Yeah. And to the world. Okay. So there's, you're sitting there and I'm sitting here and winged words can fly between Mm. our souls and what's in my soul. I can reveal to you through words. I mean, people don't appreciate that, but the things I'm talking about and revealing to you are things I know because I drink water that you also drink because I see stars that you also see, because I walk, I drive, you know, we live in, we live in a world that we both see Mm. with the same apparatus of sensitivities to it. Right. We both see it. Now, the glory of it is there's also a lot of different ways we see it. So we can always learn from each other. You see things I'll never see. Thank God. My, my perceptions are very limited. Doesn't mean they're not legit. Right. So there's, so there's, there's, you and I being able to communicate and there's you and I being able to communicate about the same things. For a student, I feel like I arrived at that notion. Well, it's take as far as field, but I feel like I re-arrived at that notion relatively late in my life, like mm. in my thirties. To become I went conscious through, of that is hard. It's really hard. It's the most liberating thing in the world to not just tell a student, but to also help the student see for themselves. Help the students see it, that yes. they can understand the world. It, And I <laughs> am against educations that do not encourage that. And I think that's what you're, I mean, I think that's a lot of the malaise of modern education. Is, an education that doesn't encourage that isn't an education. What is it instead? It's kind of, a, it's, it's a, a, it's indoctrination yeah, and corruption. Yeah. It's corruption. You're literally corrupt. You're, you are. And part of the reason the liberal arts are called the liberal arts is because they free. They're liberal because they, they liberate. And this is to me like the basic prerequisite for a freedom that comes from education is an agreement that I can understand the world if I investigate. It's not always going to be easy, but I can do it. And. Yeah, it just it just makes you got deplugged. I think here and is it not here? Thank you. I so much appreciate the um on seriouslyinstitute.org the four commonalities, and I encourage our listeners to go look at them. Um, because it those four commonalities that all Christian classical education kind of should or does share. It's a really liberating beginning point for a school. Yeah. My contention is that that is what, those are the elements of classical education, the way you have elements of chemistry. If right. you're not studying those, you're not doing chemistry. Yeah. Thank you. So. I wrote a book about it. What's that book about? What's the title of the book? Classical Education. Sounds, sounds good. Thanks. <laughs> That's the first chapter. What you're pointing out to me that is worth mentioning, though, in addition to that, though, is that's the relation between the Hebrews and the Greeks, okay? What we can easily overlook is that in the ancient world, and increasingly in the modern world, but in the ancient world, there were only two recorded civilizations that looked at the world, the physical world we live in, and said, it's good, and we should know it. And we can know it, yeah. And we can know it. The only two were the Greeks and the Hebrews. Now, I'm going to push this even further. Some Greeks, a few Greeks believe that. Many Greeks were pagans. Some Hebrews, a few Hebrews believe that. Most of them were pagans. That's why they lost the temple. That's why they lost the land. And consequently, because the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, was covenantally unfaithful, my conviction is that the Lord rose up the Greeks raised up the Greeks and taught the Greeks things that the Hebrews weren't willing to learn. Mm. And then the Hebrews had to learn it from the Greeks later. Now, an example would be, not an example, an illustration again. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about wisdom building her seven pillars. And in the Middle Ages, it became common to say that those seven pillars of, of wisdom are the seven liberal arts. And at first I thought that was just silly, but I've thought about it a lot since then. And I, I, I don't know if it's true, but I don't think it's silly. Because when you believe that the world is real, 
and you believe that we can pass knowledge between us, we can teach each other, we can explore together, we can have a, a, a dialogue where we're both talking at the same time, you know, that kind of thing. When you believe all that sort of thing, then you believe, you, you start to look for the means. And what you discover is the means are already there. We've already got them. Okay, we have, we have minds and language and, and, and senses. And that's how we come to know. All right, so then you ask the question, when does it work and when doesn't it? Now, if, if I'm, if I'm to, again, to over, you talked about the pre-Socratics, okay? There is evidence or speculation, one of the two, that the Greeks uh, at the time of the 6th century were influenced by some Hebrew thinkers. Actually, it's, it's impossible to think they weren't because they were in the same exiles. They were in the same world. There's no way they weren't influenced by, by Hebrew thinkers in some ways. Um, Persians, for example, there were tons of Jews throughout the Persian Empire, tons of Hebrews, I mean Greeks, throughout the Persian Empire. So there's no way they didn't interact. It wouldn't surprise me at all then to say that what we have in the Greek miracle, because it's a miracle, is Hebrew influence coming to fruition. You're going to say something? No, I was just going to say, you're not the only person that speculates along these lines, especially like when you read, um, for me, when I read Plato's Apology, yeah. basically Socrates' self-defense in front of the Athenian trial, what he describes his motivating influence, it's one God yes. behind all the other gods. Yes. And the kind of impulse that God has put on him... It just sounds so Hebrew. It yes. sounds so Hebrew. So I've heard other people speculate that yeah, there had to be some sort of cross-pollination and the miracle of Socrates might not be as miraculous as th- th- that this guy just kind of like conjured all this you stuff You mean it might not nowhere. be miraculous because in fact God's involved? It might not be miraculous <laughs> in that he didn't just come up with all of it him, he, oh, he all certainly of it himself. Didn't. Right. He certainly didn't. When we get to but the he Greek didn't chapter. Just, he didn't just get it from the Greeks. Right. That right. maybe he got it from, he had been cross-pollinated by Hebrews also. Well, again, Greece, Athens in particular, is a trading city. It's, it's, a, it's a post-empire when Socrates, well, it's an empire when Socrates is doing his work in, at war with Sparta. Okay. But it's an empire in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's traveling to um, Palestine Every single day it's sending ships to Palestine. It's sending ships down the Nile. It's sending ships into Asia Minor. It is sending ships into every part of the known world, which is all populated by Jews. And Jewish thinkers always play a leading role in their societies. It has been like that since Abraham said, I will bless every nation. So there is no possibility under the sun that the Greek thinkers were not influenced by the Hebrew. We don't know how. Right, we have no proof text. Correct. But historically speaking, when you look at all the commingling, it's just, it's it just, just had not to be. possible. Yeah. It isn't possible. It'd be like pouring red food coloring in a, a glass of water and saying, oh, there's no red in there. <laughs> so when we get to the Greek chapter, I want to talk about how Socrates When got are we going to get did. to the Greek chapter? Well, see, what I'm thinking right now is that this just became the Hebrew chapter. Okay. <laughs> and and, and, I've, and I, I've been kind of talking like I do way too much. So I want to summarize a point and then and then stop talking so much um so let me see if i can remember what it was but but the um the the hebrew oh, seven pillars of wisdom okay so so when you start thinking we have senses we have reason we, we have a mind right in in hebrew lev which is mind and heart um we have uh we have um we have a heart Okay, so we have an interior life, an exterior life. One of the things I love about about Homer is he has Odysseus sometimes will draw back, and it says he spoke to his... Is it, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's in chapter two of Whose Justice, Which Rationality. There's a long discourse that McIntyre has on it. It's not to my... Um, it sometimes gets translated spirit, right? Well, I, I haven't read that book, so I'm thinking right out of Homer, there's... There's four or five times when Odysseus talks to him within himself. 
And I've seen it translated spirit or heart. One of them is when the enemy is coming over the hill and he recognizes that he like doesn't stand a chance. Yeah, but yeah. what does my what does my heart, what does my spirit say to me? The good man stands and fights. Is this one of the instances? I think so. Yeah. 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 The point being here, he is talking to himself. Well, what does that mean? Talking to yourself. Mm-hmm. Now that goes back. The, the psalmist does. He says, he says, um, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Right. So here's my mind saying, bless the Lord, or, or maybe the heart through the mind, giving instructions to the soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. All that is within me. Very suggestive, right? So once you get the notion that there's parts to us, interior parts, there are all, there's an all there. And once you start thinking language is really important to this, perception, conversation, um, measurement, all these things are so important to this whole getting to know this good world that we live in and sharing it with others. You start to ask yourself, okay, then how does language work? You can't not do that. You might start by asking how does an argument work? Because, you know, it come, it's going to arise to your consciousness when you have a disagreement with another person and you try to resolve it. Okay, sometimes you resolve it and sometimes you don't. Sometimes, sometimes you reason within your head and come to a conclusion and sometimes you don't. And, I, and you ask yourself, well, how do you know? And my answer to that is resolution, harmony. You feel it if I can't, if I, there's no other way to put it. Yeah. Reason is all about feelings, in other words. So then, so then, you start to ask yourself what arguments work and what don't. And what Aristotle does is he codifies it. Here's the rules that make an argument work and here's the rules that don't. He's the first person, therefore, to codify what we call logic, but he's certainly not the first person he to didn't use invent it. it. He didn't invent it. He discovered yeah. he discovered it. And he discovered it because Plato had made such a high priority out of it in his academy, because Socrates had made such a high priority out of it. So so what I'm getting at though is that this this ability to use language at a very high level can be divided into three categories. The first category would be, how can I make sure that the particular thought that I'm thinking right now is in itself in accord with itself? In other words, how can, well, the simple way to put it is, how can I make sure that the thought or the sententia, the sentence, because Latin is sententia for thought, how can I make sure that the sentence I'm thinking is coherent, that it, that it harmonizes with itself? And the obvious point is, well, the subject and predicate have to agree. Well, I can push that then. Okay, all the parts of the predicate have to agree with all the parts of the subject. Okay, good. Now I've got the beginnings of what becomes grammar. Okay, but the basic thing I'm asking in grammar is not what are the rules of speech. The basic question I'm asking is, how can I think a coherent thought? Okay, then you ask yourself, go ahead. In a a coherent thought would be... How can I think a thought that conforms, that accurately reflects the way things actually are? Well, I would say I would say a coherent thought is one that is is it's internally coherent. It 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 is a harmony within itself. Now you extend that if you have a discord between the thought and the thing. Now you have a breakdown. But I would suggest that might be a logical breakdown more than a or a perceptive. I'm not sure. And just a side note, kind of looking forward, there will be a couple of different like ways of thinking about verifying something that's true. Right. That kind of develop in later in our story. One of them is the correspondence theory mm-hmm. and one of them is the coherentist theory. Right. So I, for me, both of those aspects, we make sense of our world and we navigate the world accurately and truthfully by when we can both tell a story that is... It, tell a story that is internally coherent, yep. but also corresponds to reality. Corresponds to reality. And, and, and it's so interesting that you say that. Okay. You use the word makes sense. We make sense of the world. Okay. First of all, to be pernickety, like my dad always said I was, I would argue that we're not making sense. We're finding sense, but nonetheless, in our minds, we're making sense. Okay. But look at the word sense. That comes from the Latin sententia. Okay. What we're saying is, how can I make a sentence? How can I make a coherent thought huh. of the world? Yeah. And you're exactly right. It has to cohere with itself and it has to correspond outside of itself. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying is it has to have an internal harmony and an external harmony. And to my, to my mind, that's what I'm kind of obsessed with that notion that, that good thinking is internally harmonious and externally harmonious. So when we go from grammar... So when we look at the sentence, now my next question is, 
um, how can I think a series of thoughts that all that all reflect truth, reality, whatever that are coherent? Okay. Now, if I can come up with the guidelines, the musical notations, if you like, the rules for how I can have a whole series of thoughts, then that will help me not only think an individually coherent thought, but a whole bunch of thoughts that are in harmony. I'm extending my harmony. And I can also make sure that those coherent thoughts correspond to the, co- to the reality outside of them because, because the reality is complex but coherent. Yeah. Okay. Then I run into problems. I get stuck. I think, well, the world doesn't make sense. Something just happened. Something just brought a discord. I mean, the ultimate discord is sin and death, right? How do you explain that? How do you make sense of that? So now I have, now I need help. Okay. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start presenting sentences to you. Mm. And if my sentences are internally coherent and they're coherent with the reality that you and I are both looking at, and they're coherent, consistent with um, the, the way you use language. Okay. Now you and I can think together. Yeah. And now we can find means by which we can persuade each yeah. other in the best sense persuading toward reality toward truth and learning how to resolve discords together do you have a fr- like i feel like you and i do that for each other like you i i, oh, I bring yeah. you things yeah, you bring me things my absolutely. buddy ben i mentioned my buddy ben whetstone to you last night whenever i feel like i'm in a mix i'm befuddled by something i call ben mm. and ben has this incredible ability to recognize that I am befuddled. He, I don't know if he recognizes it in his tone, in my tone, or what he does, but he recognizes it very quickly. Soul to soul, he sees your yes, soul. Yes, and he snaps into, he just says, I'm going to let Tim talk for a while, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm going to press him where things don't make sense to me, mm-hmm. because if that doesn't make sense to me, that might be kind of like the source of the misunderstanding within his own, within yeah. Tim's own heart. Yeah. And that's an invaluable, I mean, hopefully, like I think in the best marriages, that's what spouses offer each other. Uh-huh. You know, they, they know when is the time to listen so that this person can kind of, um, get it out, articulate what the befuddlement is also when to step in and be their, you know, be their advocate. But anyway, just having companionship that furthers understanding i don't know what i would do if i didn't have oh, it oh we'd be so lost oh my goodness Jim, and we'd, it's, be, we'd be so it's lost. so heartbreaking i mean there's so many people that just don't have that person or persons in their life so many people um it's part of the reason why seriously conferences are such a pleasure to me we're not all on the exact same page but we at least have a similar enough i don't like the word foundation because it sounds so... Um, I would say objective, maybe. We have a similar objective. Maybe we have a similar objective. And we have, like, there's probably a similar hunger. Yeah. There's a, a similar curiosity. Our curiosities run along the same grooves or similar grooves. But that's a side note. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's interesting. I don't think in terms of grooves, I think more like we're hounds looking for the same scent. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but what is more important for the human soul than the ability to resolve discord, whether it be social. I mean, isn't that our whole right so problem in America right. today? We don't know how to resolve discord. Yeah. What is more important in your own mind to, than to resolve discord, right? That's what you're saying is you feel discord and you have a friend who knows you so well that he can feel yes, absolutely. the discord, heart absolutely. to heart, right? He feels the discord and then probes to help you resolve the discord to bring you to a har- higher harmony. And that's what all of the seven liberating arts, all of the seven pillars of wisdom are doing. Because wisdom, here, here's what I think wisdom ultimately is. Wisdom is the ultimate, the, the perception of how everything ultimately fits together. And when we talk about Christ, the wisdom of God, which is exactly what Paul calls him, that's, that's Christ is not only, it's not just that Jesus knows how things all fit together, he is how all things fit mm-hmm, together. Mm-hmm. He is the principle of harmony. He's the Logos. Mm. He is the principle of harmony that makes everything ultimately fit together. And so, so when we talk about seven pillars of wisdom, 
that means that for us to become wise, for us to become wise, for us to be able to um, perceive that whole, there are certain God-given um, abilities that we have to honor and use. And, and that means thinking, right? But it, it, but it means living our lives in light of our thinking. And in that sense, I would say we need to be rational. Now, that just introduced a word that is really problematic. Mm-hmm. But in that sense, mm-hmm. we need to be musical, mm-hmm. which is what I mean by rational, of course. Yeah. What else could I mean? <laughs> <laughs> we, we need to be always seeking and living for that harmony. Now, what I'm getting at in this whole talk, this whole session of podcast, whatever, what I'm getting at in this whole time is that the Hebrews are the ones who introduced that notion to the human race and that it was primarily introduced. The moment of introduction was Exodus 3.14. I am. All is one in me. I made this. It's not me, but it's one in me. And when you, and when you realize the world is good and knowable and, and uh, we, that we have the tools given by God to know it, it, become, it behooves us, as people used to say, oportet nobis. It, 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 it becomes our duty above all else to equip ourselves to bring harmony to our own minds, to our own communities, to the physical world we live in, and to the whole cosmos, because the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. And they're the ones who are going to know how to sing. Looking as with an outstretched neck, longing for the reconciliation of the sons of man. Is that what, that's one of the translations of that verse that you're talking about? Are you talking about in Romans? Yeah. Huh? Revelation is what I thought it said. Maybe maybe it is revelation. But it's a reconciliation, not just of individual Christians with God. It's the reconciliation of all things. Well, what's a reconciliation if not a restoration of harmony between... Mm. This brings us to a connecting point, Um, the Hebrews and the Greeks. We've already talked Mm -hmm, about it a little mm -hmm, bit. mm -hmm. I'd like to tell my students when I teach ancient Greek and Roman history that Western civilization, this is such an outdated notion. Western civilization? that, That Western civilization is a tree that was born of kind of like two seeds that got grafted together. Two cities, Jerusalem and Athens, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe we can graft in Athens right now because we've been talking about Hebrews. The Mm -hmm. Hebrews have this notion. This was our Hebrew chapter. This is our Hebrew chapter. It's a prologue to the rest. So do you want to pause here? I I feel like we're like maybe doing false advertising. We keep talking about this biography of reason. we're, we're, We're doing it. We did a prologue. We're doing it. Do you want to do... Chapter, what do you want to start over and do chapter one on part three? What do you mean by part three? You mean the third podcast would be chapter mm-hmm. one, would be the Greek birth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do that. You want to sign off? Yeah. I think Don't. everybody wants us to sign off now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Tim. See you later. See you later, Andrew. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.